This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 121. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. My name is Michael Blanc. I'm really excited you're here to learn about apartment building investing, one of the best ways to become financially free with real estate. Today's focus is going to be on property management, and with me to help with the topic is property management expert Brian Chavis. What I love about him is his story is so inspiring. He's dealt with so much adversity, including a bout with cancer in which he lost basically everything, almost his life, as well as his business going through that and rebounded from that and became a thought leader in property management. Today, he's a sought-after speaker. He has property management classes, certifications. He's got two books out as well. So the focus really is going through the five steps of stabilizing a multifamily property all the way from acquisition to exit. That's the focus of the show today. So let's get right into the interview with Brian Chavis. Here we go. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show today. Well, thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm really great to be talking to you. It's such an inspiring story here. And like I said earlier, people come up with all kinds of excuses not to do something. And you've had many, many reasons in your life simply just to give up. You've had so right. much adversity. And you know now you teach other people how to become property managers. You're an investor. You're a speaker, and reach just an incredible amount of success. And I just want to unpack some of the story that you have, and I really love that. Just give us a little background on yourself. Just lead up to the time where you started getting into property management and real estate. What happened early on in my career? You know, I uh, was looking for a job. I you know I thought I was going to inspire to be a an NBA basketball player. That career didn't work out. And so one day I was just, you know, in the back of my parents' yard, thumbing through a newspaper with a friend and, you know, basically telling my friend, man, you know, I got to get out of my father's house because, you know, he's going to like get a job. If you're not playing basketball, you need to go get a job. So I was thumbing through the newspaper and I was trying to find a gig and I came across this leasing agent stuff. And, you know, back then they offered a free apartment typically with employment. My car really didn't work. It was a stick. It was an old Volkswagen Jetta, so I used to always have to jump it, you know, push start it and hop in and then drive. So, you know, my transportation was always questionable. So living and working in the same place, it made sense. So that's kind of really what got me into the industry. Of course, over the years, I had the pleasure of working for private investors as well as institutional type investors. And I say the benefit, you know, because it allowed me to see the best of both worlds on how the private sector handled things, and then how the more of the institutional guys like your Camden and Post Properties, how those guys handled things from training to, you know, how they dealt with the employees and the properties and, you know, more of an asset manager's role versus a property manager's role. And that was kind of lacking with the private owner, the equity firm that I originally started with. You know, there were more of a, if at best, a property management on-site operator Versus even though they had large apartment buildings, they really didn't have, a, in my opinion, have a grasp of the asset management side, the long-term vision of what their strategy was. They were just living day to day. You know, so I got to see the best of both worlds. And that's kind of really how I got my start in the multifamily industry. So it really went from right straight to the red hotels. <laughs> yeah, right. So you were a property manager for a larger asset management firm? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yep. And then got into the asset management side, the acquisition specialist side of things where I really learned, you know, those five phases and how to get on boots on ground, turn projects around, 
realize investors, you know, their goals and uh, whatever. Really, at the time, you know, when you're dealing with asset management, you're setting management plans and, you know, how do you execute those management plans? So, you know, I got to learn a lot, you know, in the industry and in the execution yeah. side. Yeah. What were some of the key takeaways from that time in your career? I mean, there's a ton of key takeaways. I mean, if you ask me this question, probably once a week, I probably have a different takeaway depending on the day and the week I'm in. The takeaways are just understanding the operational side of things, you know, because I think a lot of people do not have a realistic approach about getting into multifamily. It's great. You can read books. Obviously, you know, I'm an author, but books can only give you so much, you know, so the real life experience as an operator really helped me to be a thought leader in this industry and to be able to say, hey, look, you know, only through experience can one really you know, understand and truly understand this industry. And so, you know, for me, I was fortunate enough to be on these properties and deal with, you know, you're talking about thousands of rental units. So on a daily basis, I'm dealing anywhere from dealing with individuals, you know, who have passed away in the units to evictions. And you're dealing with 20 to 30 evictions a week. You know, you're dealing with turnover, you're dealing with rehabbing a lot of these properties because back in the early 2000s, it was all about finding assets that were undervalued and bringing value to the asset. So, you know, multiple projects, working with contractors, you know, dealing with tenant issues day to day. We can do a show on the various different things that I actually, you know, have experienced in my career as an operator. You were obviously working for a larger firm and you did property management, asset management, acquisitions. At one point, did you decide to kind of break out on your own? Obviously, later on, when I started to get confidence and I've done several projects, I just seen the money that these guys were making. And it was like, you know, why me? Why not me? And I've seen, you know, from these, especially the private equity guys or the private uh, investor, a lot of these guys were self-made and, you know, much respect to them. They were self-made. I would always ask questions, you know, how did you get started? And, you know, at the end of the day, they said, hey, look, you know, some of them, I inherited some money. I invested in real estate. Some of them said I started with duplexes. One guy had a roofing company, kind of got started with partnering with other individuals. You know, now today, more common is the syndication route. But back then, you know, these guys were just self-made. When I started to hear these stories, the question became, why not me? You know, at the end of the day, I'm an operator. And for me, having done all facets of this industry, except maintenance, of course, is that you quickly understand the cornerstone to this whole project or this whole multifamily game is really understanding the property management side of things. So I felt that I had that, you know, kind of mastered. And so I began to kind of go off on my own. And so I wrote a book, you know, a manual on how to do property management kind of launched my speaking career. I went from real estate investment club to real estate investment club, kind of built a brand organically back then. This was before, of course, social media and things of that nature. And that's kind of really how, how that got started. And then as a speaker, you know, it obviously opened me up to opportunities to kind of develop a business. And then that business opened me up to opportunities to work with investors. It's a fabulous story. And you had dealt with a lot of adversity at one point. Talk about some of that and kind of what you had to deal with. And we got to talk about that. Before the brain tumor, you know, because that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, mostly the lead-off story. But, I mean, I faced a ton of adversity just as an individual that said, okay, I want to own multifamily. Well, not having two nickels rubbed together, that's a tremendous amount of adversity. Not having anything but a high school diploma. Where do I get the credibility? Where do I get the knowledge? Of course, you know, I was gaining the knowledge dealing and working in the multifamily industry. So, you know, I faced tons of hurdles even before the brain tumor, and you're going to face challenges. As soon as you say, hey, look, your listeners are listening, and they say, you know, to themselves, this is something that I want to do. I want to get involved with real estate. You know, then the hurdles become, 
how do I do this? How do I put this together? And I'm short of money. I'm short of knowledge. I'm short of whatever excuse you're going to come up with. You're going to have all these various different challenges that one's going to have to face. So, you know, it's always something. Obviously, the brain tumor was devastating. But for me, there's a season, there's always something, some kind of mountain that I'm always having to climb. So adversity and understanding how to deal with these obstacles and understanding that, you know, the obstacles are going to come, you know, and, and just really developing the character to understand that and expect it and begin to embrace it. How do I engineer my thinking versus the victim? You know, this has happened to me. Oh, why me? Why am I broke? Why did I grow up in a single parent household? Oh, why am I, you know, broke? You know, whatever excuse, whatever the why is, you know, you're, you're complaining about. I mean, you have to learn how to take these adversities and learn how to embrace them. And for me, I just kind of am trying to develop a mindset through all this of embracing these challenges and understanding that they're here to help me develop my character for me to go to the next level. And obviously the brain tumor is, you know, what most of your listeners are probably going to want to hear about. And uh, for me, that was the ultimate blow because I've always started developing this mindset. I've always been doing things for me fundamentally the right way, at least I thought the correct way. And then to have this blow was quite devastating. And it broke me because I had no insurance. I didn't have any medical insurance at the time. So I actually had to liquidate everything that I had to, to have the surgeries performed and to be able to have the treatments and things of that nature. So, I mean, obviously that was the biggest blow. And then being sick, I really don't think people understand the depths from which this brain tumor really took me to. I mean, I was having weekly seizures. I mean, these were debilitating seizures that would really, you know, cripple you. They would lock up my face and my tongue and my motor skills on my left side. So they were extremely painful. It was almost like having cramps. We all know and have heard stories about chemo or I've had loved ones that had to battle and deal with chemo and things of that nature. So having to deal with all those things as well as still have a job, you know, I can remember having seizures hours before I had to go in and give a lecture or get up on stage and speak in the hotel room. And these seizures, typically after you had them, you know, I just wanted to sleep for hours on end because they just took so much out of you. But then I had to get up and go and speak because, of course, you know, I had to make money. There's a lot to unpack here. We're never going to be able to do it in 30 minute show, but just understanding how to face those adversities and try to come through the other end is key. So I find it uh, interesting. You said you want to embrace adversity. Most people simply want to ignore them or run away from them. You know, you learn that you need to embrace adversity because you said it shapes your character. I can certainly confirm that from my own experience as well. In what way do you think that the tumors shaped your character? What difference did it make in your life? I mean, that's another show. Uh, you got 30 try to, seconds. <laughs> I'll try, exactly. I'll try to summarize it in 30 seconds. Spiritually, it just made a better man out of me because, I mean, of course, it questioned my faith. It questioned everything that I believed in fundamentally, the whole why me. And again, you know, it questioned and challenged my, I don't want to say will, but, you know, the idea of should I try to stay around for this? You know what I mean? It might be easier just to go jump off a bridge somewhere because, you know, the medical bills are piling up. The reports are not that good. So, you know, there's a ton of things. But ultimately, spiritually, as a man, I think it's allowed me to really shape and mold me. And hopefully, you know, it's allowed me to be able to tell the story, which is difficult for me at times. But hopefully it's allowed me to be able to share my story and help others get through whatever adversities. Because the one thing that's consistent is we're all going to face some sort of adversity. For me, I used to listen to the Les Brown motivational stuff, the T.D. Jakes, the Joel Osteen. You know, I learned to be able to surround myself with positivity, and it's so easy nowadays with social media. But, you know, for me, that's what it's about. If I can hear someone else who's faced these adversities and come through them, 
And if I can share my story and help someone else, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I love that. I hear people with, I guess, more minor situations than, than what you have, you know, and come up with excuses why they can't do anything. You've obviously overcome multiple challenges. And I think it's a lesson there in itself. And since then, you've done, like you said, you've published a couple of books. You have property management certification training. You've really become a thought leader in the property management space. I want to talk about some of the aspects of property management because you have in your book, it's called Buy It, Rent It, Profit, Correct. Make Money as a Landlord in Any Real Estate Market. And you really kind of break down how do you stabilize a property and how do you profit from value-add deals? And I'd love to kind of go through the five phases that you describe in that book. Can you start with kind of the first phase and, and yeah. what's entailed in that? First phase is acquisition. Then you have implementation, stabilization, growth, and then your exit strategy. And those are typically the five phases. Of course, you know, everybody's going to look at those five phases and have different goals. The asset manager is going to look at those. They're going to work with ownership to kind of develop the management plan. And then it, typically it's the property manager's job to go and execute those plans. Some of your listeners are going to be all three of those individuals, owner, asset manager, and property manager. But yeah, it's about uh, understanding the acquisitions, understanding how to buy it. Right now, it's very difficult to find deals to pencil out. I mean, we're looking at deals right now. Everyone's looking at lower cap rates and rightfully so. You know, areas that you want to be in with minimal risk, I mean, you're going to pay a premium for it. You know, I think right now there's kind of a standoff between sellers and buyers. And that acquisition is understanding how to, you know, really go in and make a deal work and pencil a deal out because, you know, right now I think the sellers, they have a big stick and they're swinging it. These lower cap rates, I mean, they're not leaving much meat on the bone for the next guy. You know, there's a lot of individuals, a standoff. You're looking for opportunities and deals and you got to wade through so many to find something that's actually going to work. So the acquisition part is extremely important, understanding how to buy from a cash income approach. And then we enter into what we call implementation. And implementation is when you do buy and you show up on Monday, how do you implement the proper systems? And you typically divide it into two hard systems and soft systems. The hard systems are the procedures, manuals that everyone's trained on and they know about going about. The manual tells them and identifies the work that needs to be done and then tells the user how to go about performing that work to get that consistency that you need because consistency comes to profitability. And then the soft systems are typically the property management software that you use like Buildium software. You know, you have software and platforms like Homey, which is a property maintenance software. You implement those soft systems and then you enter into what we call stabilization, which is basically, you know, the short of it is, is maximizing the income and minimizing the expenses on the property. From stabilization, it's the exit strategy. And that is different for everyone. But typically when you're dealing with multifamily, you have a hold between seven to 20 years. You know, when you're looking at terminal values, where do you want to terminate and what year are you going to exit the property? Your management plan should be clear on that. You know, really, that's what the exit strategy is about. And that's going to be different for every property in every market. Also, the ownership group or the syndications. Everybody's going to have a different opinion on that. And each property may have a different exit strategy. Yeah. Now, let's talk about some of those phases here. Obviously, you said it's a kind of a challenging time. The temptation for syndicators and buyers is to relax their underwriting criteria. And I, I see it a lot. In fact, I see it all the time. Every time we lose a deal to somebody, you kind of scratch your head going, how is this guy going to make, you know, going to make yeah, money? How's he going to do it? That, trust me. And I'm, I'm, you look at, you know, <laughs> private placement memoranda and marketing package from other syndicators. You're looking at their underwriting going, these guys, you know, they're advertising a 17% IRR, but look at their underwriting, right? Look at the rent growth. Look at the expense ratios. Look at the reserves or the lack thereof. And you're like, these guys are getting deals done, but their underwriting is really, really aggressive. What are some of the guidelines or mistakes that you see people making 
and what should buyers kind of avoid? What should we be careful of, you know, as we are in the acquisition phase? The number one thing that everyone should be careful of, uh, including us, is, you know, just understanding what we're getting ourselves into deal-wise and being realistic. You know, like I said, you know, we have to sharpen our pencil nowadays. The deals that I'm getting, you know, me and Joey are looking at a deal the other day and he's like, do you like this? I'm like, yeah, I like it. But do I love it? I mean, no, because at the end of the day, if we get into this deal and there's any kind of fluctuation in the market, we're into this deal. These guys have already maxed out the rents. We're already at the top of the market as far as rents are concerned. There's not much room to go. There's really only room to go, you know, down. And I don't foresee us really going up. Obviously, you have to keep in mind with wages, there's only so much you can go increase rents. So, you know, you have to be realistic on the long-term approach. Are you going to continue to see 3%, 4% growth in certain areas? And to make some of these deals work that you have to continue that for seven to 20 years. And that's just not realistic. Our employment is, we're frothy. We're looking good employment, but will that continue with the current interest rate hikes and various different things? When do we see a slowdown in the economy? You know, we have this situation with the current administration and tariffs. How is that going to impact some of our demographics that we rent to our prospect tenants? You know, and then, yeah, you know, you're looking at IRRs and you're looking at the cash multiples and things of that nature. So you're always going to have to plug in and factor in. And for those are your listeners that are scratching their head thinking, you know, what is an IRR is the efficiency from which we receive that money. You know, how efficient are we receiving our money and our dollar back? Because sometimes a low cap rate is not a problem. I can sell a project to a syndication or a group and say, hey, listen, we're in a great area. I just did a project in downtown St. Pete. You know, we just bought a great property. I feel a value add play. Because, you know, the rent schedules are somewhere right around 850 to 875 and I'm already pushing them up to 950, 975. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm telling the investors, you know, you really want to focus on a moderate cash multiple or return on your investment. But, you know, at the end of the day, the efficiency from which you're going to get your money back is we're going to have a higher efficiency, low cash multiple, higher efficiency. A lot of these guys are okay with that because, you know, their money is sitting in the bank and they need to put their money into something. And they want to put their money in the real estate. So they're really not looking for a killing. They're really not looking for higher returns, but they are looking for a steady cash flow. When you were talking about that IRR and that's attractive to them, the efficiency from which they're going to receive their money is important to them. A lower return is not so important. You know, at the end of seven years, at the end of 20 years, whatever our strategy is, of course, when we sell, then they're going to see a much higher return. That should be when you're looking at your terminal values, you're going to be able to determine what that cash flow, those yields look like to your investors. But your knowledge is going to have to increase. You know, you can't just look at things from a cash multiple standpoint. You can't just look at things from an IRR standpoint, obviously. And you can't just look at things from a net present value. You're going to have to look at all three of those and understand how all three of those work in each environment that we're in, each market that we're in, and then try to be able to forecast these markets, which is, you know, right now it's a bit difficult, but it's doable. We got to build a certain margin of error into our underwriting because we are moving into uncertain times and everybody kind of acknowledges we're due for a correction. We don't really know what's going to trigger it, what it's going to look like, how long it's going to last, but we can't certainly count on continuous growth. So we got to build some kind of some, some margin <laughs> for error in it. Absolutely. That, right? and, but, I, and I also think too, Michael, the sellers have to be realistic with yeah. that. And I think most of them are trying to hit everybody over the head with a real big stick. It's like, you know, if I'm selling something, who am I not trying to get the maximum dollar? But yeah. obviously, you know, that's where the standoff is coming is seller expectation. And they're getting away with it to a large degree, which is a which So the bottom line for us is, you know, we're still doing deals. You're still doing deals, but it's a numbers game like everything else. And you got to look at a certain number of deals and you just got to make sure you don't relax your underwriting criteria. Yes, maybe pay yourself a little less. And maybe the investors have been spoiled for the last five years with the returns. And we're finding now collectively, hey, you know what? 
returns may not be as frothy as it were the last five years. <laughs> and investors are starting to come around to that. You know, right. they're hearing the same message from multiple different sources and they're kind of going, oh, you know what, if I sit on the sidelines and I'm waiting for a 20% IRR, I may not be doing a deal for the next five years. So maybe I can exactly. relax that a little bit. But real important on the acquisition side, not to relax your underwriting criteria to a degree. The next three phases is implementation, stabilization, and growth. And our model typically is to outsource the property management. And you guys are obviously, you're training property managers and you're working with a lot of property managers. Correct. Now, so for our model, it's really important that we pick the right manager. So from that lens, can you talk about what's really important in each of those phases? So when you bring on someone and you close on this deal, you're very excited. You know, you've, mm-hmm. you've interviewed different property managers. You've checked their reference. You think you got the right company. And you learn a lot about how a proper management company acts in probably the first 30 to say 90 days. And the implementation phase is so key. So when you talk about, you know, how to implement proper management systems, and you're basically trying to wrap your head around it, trying to figure out what kind of reporting they're doing, what Mm -hmm. should someone look for in that first, you know, I say maybe 60 to 90 days, you know, when someone says, what kind of grade will my proper manager get in the implementation phase? What should someone be looking for there? When you're looking into greater property management, obviously, you know, hopefully you've done some of this homework before you actually even allow them to step foot on your property during your due diligence phase. When you're talking about a property manager, some of the skill sets nowadays are kind of bleeding into the asset manager. Some people are wanting their property managers to also have some of those asset manager type of uh, skill sets, understanding how to forecast, understanding how to set budgets understanding how to analyze investment properties and how those findings actually help to dictate what goes on on a daily basis. 10 years ago, you didn't see that. Asset managers were asset managers, property managers were property managers, and there was a divide between the two. With technology and education and training, those lines are starting to get grayer and grayer. So really with a property manager, I think you know for the most part, you really want those individuals to kind of step outside just the property management, the day-to-day operations. Yes, you want them to understand the two systems. And hopefully I broke that down easy for your listeners, hard systems and soft systems. What type of property management software are they using? Is that platform user-friendly to both investors and property managers? How intuitive is it? You know, How responsive is it? How is that software being received by your demographic, your tenants? Is it user-friendly for your tenants? So it's not just reporting and what type of reports we can get from it, because I think they're all going to give you the same amount of reporting, but the user-friendly aspect of the software and how well the property manager knows how to use that software, how trained are they on that software is extremely important. And then as an operator, how good do they do their job? And a lot of that, it's tough. I've got class A property. I've been on class A property and the property managers really do nothing. All they got to do is just maintain and make sure there's no lights flash on the dashboard and they're good. But then you go and you visit a property, like Class C property in a lower income neighborhood where you're chasing your net operating income and you get to see the true skill sets of a property manager. So I wanted my property managers to understand how to manage assets from every asset class. If I dropped you off in a low income neighborhood, could you chase that net operating income? You know, can you reduce my turnovers? Because there's a lot of people that are spoiled. You know, they're sitting on a lot of Class A properties and, you know, there's not much that goes into it. Everything is done through portals and all they got to do is monitor systems. I want to be able to see that my property managers really understand those five phases and they understand the acquisition, the implementation of systems, the stabilization of the property, and they're able to put together the number one thing, a management plan. Can they put together a management plan does that management plan make sense to my particular property? And this is something that we're seeing a spectrum also in our property management. And I would say 
Obviously, the smaller the property, the less sophisticated the property manager becomes and the larger is, though that's not always the case. But the question is, right. how realistic, and you talk about a management plan is so key because you were talking about the stabilization and the growth. In order to stabilize something, you have to be able to control the property's income and expenses. We're seeing a little bit of a divergence between the property management aspect, which is, hey, if something breaks, I fix it, and providing good customer service versus actually managing it as a business. Right. So right. if you're constantly over in a certain area, repair and maintenance, even though you're providing great customer client service, but you're not making your numbers, are you really serving the owner? And to what degree is it important for a property manager to be able to monitor the income and expenses and to run it as a business? Is that expectation? Is it too much to expect a property manager to do that? Or do you expect your property manager to be able to do that? Yeah. Ten years ago, that was too much to expect for a property manager to understand. Essentially, what you're asking me is the ability for the property manager to be proactive and not reactive. In layman's terms, that's what we're saying. You know, can you be proactive versus reactive? Ten years ago, the answer was no. I have to be reactive because the skill sets and the systems weren't in place for them to really be reactive. The monitoring of the property software nowadays, you know, does a lot of monitoring. I mean, they've got software and platforms nowadays that will change the rents for you. They monitor your work orders that come in. They're flagging you saying, hey, look, this AC has gone out way too many times. You might want to look into it. So the ability to forecast, the ability for these property managers to have these abilities, this dashboard in front of them now allows them to be a little bit more proactive. So nowadays, absolutely, we want them looking at it as if they're an owner, an equity owner. And essentially, that's why I take on the management and our syndications ourselves, because you know we want to be tied to the deal. I do not want to outsource it. I do not foresee myself ever outsourcing the property management because I know it does play such a huge role. And at the end of the day, even if I can get them to be proactive, I mean, how proactive are they going to be when they don't have ownership in the property? So you do find great property management companies that do that. And you have to hope to God that you can hold on to those individuals as well. But you're absolutely right. You know, the key is being proactive versus reactive. The good news is that the software and the training and the technology that's available these days is allowing these individuals to be much more proactive and help the ownership reach their goals. Yeah, and we find the same thing. I mean, the software is amazing. The key is to what degree is the property manager using the tools. So sometimes they don't even know, you know, what kind of car they're driving, what it can actually do. And that sometimes is a challenge. And that's where you have to inspect what you expect. So, you know, if I'm outsourcing that to property managers, I want to know, you know, how well do you know your platform? If this scenario came up, if it's a class A property, then I'm going to give you scenarios that you might see on a class C property. And I want to know how you're going to handle those. So I might throw some things at you and see, you know, how would you handle those things, especially in the interview process when looking for a good property management company, you know, everybody should have a interview sheet or a script that they go by when they sit down with the property manager. And that property manager should be able to fire those answers to you very quickly. And every time I give a lecture or a class to property managers, I always ask, who can stand up and give me the seven protected classes under the Civil Rights Act of 1968? And you'll be surprised how many can't. And for me, I lead with that question coming in. If they can't answer that, you know, our conversation is very short. That's certainly one aspect. The other one is how can an owner kind of audit or keep their property manager, I guess, honest? And this is ranging from things like errors where, you know, one expense is counter towards the wrong property all the way to, you know, fraud or taking advantage of the owner. Mm-hmm. What can the owner do on a regular, you know, monthly, weekly basis to kind of prevent that and or maybe catch it if it's going on? Yeah, that is, again, inspect what you expect. 
and you can do that through walking your property. That's realistic for some, but however, if you have ownership, you need to be getting there at least every quarter, yeah. walking your property. Every month, you should have what we call an AME, accounting month end, and you should be scrutinizing your rent rolls. You should be scrutinizing your maintenance tickets. You should be scrutinizing the P&Ls. Those things are going to tell the story. So if somebody's doing something wrong, I'm looking at the rent rolls, looking at my maintenance tickets, looking at my P&Ls, the income coming in, the income going out. It's going to be able to paint a picture, looking at my turnovers, looking at the amount of traffic that I have, my lead generation, the traffic that I have, and my close ratio, my vacancy rates, looking at all these various different things in my reporting. It's going to paint a picture for me, and I'll be able to tell fairly quickly whether or not someone is doing their job or not doing their job. And again, inspect what you expect. But if the ownership themselves don't know how to perform, then obviously, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is always king. You know, I used to think that there's such thing as passive income. I no longer believe it. I think the multifamily is probably one of the most leveraged businesses you can time-wise, but I think you're right. The owner that is aloof or is complacent is not watching it. It's going to be very difficult to kind of make any money with it. And so on the other hand, I don't think you need to micromanage your property manager. If you're micromanaging your property manager, probably something is not right with the property manager. Um, And the software has all these things in there. You mentioned a lot of the key performance indicators or KPIs to watch. Maybe we can kind of go over that again, because I think it's really important that owners kind of know the 10 or so, you know, KPIs to watch every single month. Can you kind of summarize again what one should watch every single week or month? Yeah. So those KPIs, key performance indicators, you know, I'm looking at the rent rolls. We're looking at the delinquencies. We're looking at the maintenance budgets every month, the amount of tickets that come in on a monthly basis, studying the P&Ls, which are showing me the income that comes in, the income that's going out, traffic, you know, what is the marketing working? Are we closing? You know, if we had 15 pieces of traffic, you know, we only had two leases that week. I mean, something's wrong. I mean, we're not closing. So, you know, I'm looking at all these KPIs and these key indicators to help paint a picture on what's really going on with the property. And, you know, and that should be done at least on a monthly basis. For me, I will micromanage until I feel like the individual can handle things on their own. So uh, again, for me, it always comes down to inspect what you expect. If I'm the syndicator, you know, and I've put together a syndication, these individuals are going to expect me to deliver. And so, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm not really understanding what's going on with the property, then I cannot deliver properly. So I'm very much hands-on. And if it takes micromanaging for a couple of weeks or a month or so before I feel like the individual has what it is, they need tools that they need and they've kind of got a grasp of the property, then so be it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So you got a couple of books out. Talk a little bit My about Red Profit. Those. Bestseller and Simon Schuster, you know, because everybody has a book out. So I have to, you know, my publisher and my publicist like to make sure I mention that Simon Schuster published Byron and Profit is in the U.S. Library of Congress. So it's the only book on property management and multifamily in the U.S. Library of Congress. So, you know, there's a tremendous amount of credibility behind there because, again, nowadays through social media, everyone's a multifamily expert. Everyone is a genius or a thought leader. So, you know, it's important that your listeners are able to distinguish, you know, who's trying to sell them something because, you know, there's a big difference between a salesperson and an advisor. Salesperson wants to make money from you and advisor wants to make money with you. So, you know, you just want to make sure that, you know, where you're getting your information is critical. But the Byron and Profit and the Landlord Entrepreneur are the two books that I've put out. You can also find me on buyatrentedprofit.com. We have our podcast, Buy It, Rent It, Profit, and we drew a line through the word profit and replaced it with profit like biblical because we're always going to try to bring you the latest and greatest prophecy in multifamily. You know, that's something that's really exciting. My partner, Joe, 
Ebanks has resurrected me, Cash Man. Big shout out to Joey Ebanks, Cash Man. You can find him on buyitrentedprofit.com too. Buy it rented profit corp we built together and, and really our goal is to not only create syndications but show others how it's done you know that level of transparency is really important for me i want to be able to help others i um, mean you know i've seen the worst of the worst i was allowed to come back for a reason it far reaches just real estate so you know i don't want you to think hey yeah i back to write more books that's not what it's about but that is the platform that god has blessed me with so of course that's a part of it but our outreach far extends just talking to people and entrepreneurs about real estate. You know, we want to develop entrepreneurs, period. Real estate is just a platform that we believe strongly in, as well as you do and your listeners, that we believe strongly that people are going to have to really take a strong look at this industry, especially multifamily, and really, you know, because we can't depend on others to be able to take care of us in the near future. What do you feel like is your mission now? It's developing. I'm a spiritual man. I feel God is, you know, revealing that to me every day. My mission right now is just to wake up and be appreciative. You know, for the most part, I do have a lot that I wake up every day and feel like, you know, I can be negative about losing everything and having to start over from scratch sucks. Let me just mention that right now. It really sucks with a capital S. At the end of the day, if I can still wake up and say, you know what, though, God has blessed me with a great wife, a great family, great friends, a great new partner, great team that's around me. Big shout out to Sean and Beverly and all those that are helping. Let's try to be thankful and grateful for those things that we do have versus the things I've either lost or the things that I haven't obtained yet. So just being grateful right now is my mission is to really focus on myself. And if I can focus on myself and talk about it and share my story, then I think ultimately what I'm doing is helping others. So I really haven't packaged anything, you know, like I'm out being me. I'm out doing my thing and I'm not keeping my mouth shut. I'm letting people know the adversities that I've had. And I'm letting people know that I'm starting over from scratch. And it's okay to let people know that. And it's okay to start over from scratch. And it's okay because there's a season for everything. You know, at the end of the day, really, that right now is what's getting me up in the morning every day. I love it. I can sense the passion. What are you excited about right now? What am I excited about? Just the new beginnings, the opportunity to be able to do exactly what I'm saying, the opportunity now to wake up and be thankful for what I do have versus stop looking at what I don't have and what I've lost. So I'm excited about this new journey. I'm excited about how am I going to get it back because I really feel that, I don't know, sometimes the process in itself, Michael, I'm sure you know this better than I do, is sometimes we forget the day-to-day grind and we forget to relish the day-to-day grind. It's the journey, you know what I mean, And, and not the end. And the relationships that we are developing along this journey, sometimes you just got to stop and smell the roses, brother. You got to realize that, hey, look, it ain't that bad. And let me tell you something. I'll leave with this. I can remember being in the ICU over in Tampa General. I can remember being there. And I can remember most people don't make it out of the floor that I was on. 80% of the people are there to transfer, you know, to go on to the next life. I shot a video and I'm walking around the ICU in circles trying to get my movement back and my speech. And my wife is walking me. I remember looking at those people hooked up to those machines, man, and like I said, ready to make the transition to the next life and their families are all around them. And this is during Christmas, by the way, when I was sick. And I remember seeing a guy, family was all around him. He's hooked up to all these machines and he looks like he's about to get ready to transition at any time. But his bed and his angle was such that he could see me and I could see him, me walking in circles on the floor. And I can remember him just watching me. And I don't know what he was thinking. Families all around him hooked to the machines, ready to make his transition. But I can remember thinking, you know what? 
I'm in a real effed up position here. But I guarantee you that man would trade places with me in a minute. And I can remember thinking, you know, Brian, yeah, you know, you've lost everything. You know, I can't talk. I'm drooling all over myself. Can't even brush my teeth. But I guarantee you, as jacked up as I was, that man at that moment would have traded places with me at any time, you know, at, in, in any position that I'm either in at that time or I am in currently right now. And that's kind of what I have to keep in mind. I think that's what we all have to keep in mind, no matter what we're going through right now, is somebody is willing to trade places with you, no matter how bad your situation is. And I can guarantee you that man would have traded places with me or anybody else of your listeners just for a moment, an extra moment in time to spend around his family or to get through the holiday season with his family and not transition. So I'll leave you with that. Yeah, thank you for that. Gratitude is so important. Sometimes when we're in the pits, there's still so much that we can be grateful for, but we forget that. We wallow in our misery and we feel sorry for ourselves. So that's a great reminder, Brian. How can people connect with you? They can connect with me on Facebook, buyitreddit.com, all social media platforms. You know, they can call our 800 number, 800-535-2476 and reach out to the Landlord Academy, Buy It, Rent, and Profit. You know, it's our parent company that pretty much owns all of my companies and they can find me there, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it, they can find me and right at our website, buyitreddit.com and also Buy It, Rent, and Profit podcast that'll be airing also our multifamily group for which I want you to join too. Multifamily Real Estate Investing with best-selling author Brian Chavis on Facebook is a group. So, you know, they can find us there and join us there as well. That's awesome. So book is buy it, rent it, profit, make money as a landlord in any real estate market. It's always good to know how to stabilize the property so you can better manage the manager or of course do it yourself. So Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Michael. I greatly appreciate you. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. So your property manager plays a key role in the entire life cycle of apartment buildings, all the way from acquisition, all the way through exit. They're just a key member from the very beginning and getting this right cannot be understated. This is why a lot of larger asset management companies decide to do this on their own because they control more of it. Our model and what we teach normally is to outsource that because it's more scalable, allows you to move into markets more rapidly. You know, if you start building up hundreds, maybe even thousands of units, it makes a lot of sense to start building your own property management company. Until then, we're going to be focused on getting there. Until then, it's very important that you hire and manage the right property manager. And I've been through having to fire and replace property managers on the one hand to property managers that excel. You can have a very high quality of life and a manager does a great job and a lower one with one that does not. And I've experienced both. I think one of my mistakes early on was to hold on to a non-performing property manager out of simple loyalty and giving them a chance to perform But you learn a lot about a property manager in the first 30 to 60 days about how they report, how they communicate with you. Are they doing what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it? Or do they miss milestones? Are they just getting it done? Are they being proactive? Are they being reactive? These are all things you learn very, very quickly. And the more I found that you have to micromanage a property manager, the maybe the less of a fit there is. At the same time, finding a property manager that, as Brian describes, that is proactive, it's a challenge. And I think the majority of them are simply doing their job and some are just basically reactive and it's really up to you to run the business. And if that's one of the property managers you're dealing with, especially if you're doing something on a smaller property, it's really more important that you become more active in managing it. So you're going to be managing more of the expenses and the income and you're going to be holding them more accountable. So when week three rolls around you know, at the repair budget, whatever it is for repairs and maintenance, you might need to throttle them and say, look, if you're over this amount, I need to approve repairs and maintenance items before you do them, for example. 
and educating your property manager to start running it more as a business because the software actually is in place. A lot of software out there is not very affordable that have probably come on the market in the last two or three years that property managers are starting to use and they're very powerful. And the real key thing is training. So you may have to be more active with your property manager and be more closely involved to run the business as you want. So those five phases are really, really important and your property manager plays a key role. So hopefully you found that useful with Brian Chavis and, and hope you found his story inspiring. And when you're having a bad day, you know, Brian's reminder really is to really find something you're grateful for every single day. There's always something you're grateful for and find that one or two or three or four or five things that you're grateful for. It just sets a tone for the entire day. So that was a really, really great reminder. It's a spiritual practice of mine as well. Highly recommended. So if you haven't done so already, hop on over to the show notes there at themichaelblanc.com. Click on podcasts. And while you're there, download my free ebook. It's all about raising money. Uh, it's called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. That's the Michael Blanc, T-H-E, Michael Blanc, B-L-A-N-K.com. And grab that free ebook. If you love the show, leave me a review on iTunes. Love seeing those. It also exposes the show to more people. Really appreciate you guys. Take care. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.